It's shaping investors' expectations. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome back to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Crude oil plunges to a near six-year low as Goldman Sachs cuts uh, price forecasts. U.S. stocks fall. China stocks fall for a third day, the longest losing streak since November. Alcoa's fourth quarter profits exceed analysts' estimates, and Bill Gross says that he was fired from PIMCO. Today on Money for Nothing, Ben Collette of Sunrise Brokers talks about Japan's upcoming budget for the next fiscal year. We'll also talk with Gillam Tullock of GMT Research about potential warning signs given the explosive rise of mainland listed stocks. And in our industry segment, we'll speak with Philip Giorgio of law firm Jones Day about arbitration as an effective means of resolving disputes. Philip will also touch on the growing rivalry between Hong Kong and Singapore to become the lead arbitration center in Southeast Asia. Andrew Sullivan joins us as guest host this morning. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. So another day, another drop. Is this the new energy mantra or what? Well, I think it just shows you there's a lot of uncertainty out there still. Uh, and obviously today we get uh, you know, trade numbers out of China, so people will be watching for slowing signs there. Uh, but generally, you know, there's been this uh, you know, worry that oil is coming down because, yes, OPEC hasn't cut production, but also that there's a, a, a falling off of demand, uh, and that's what's really worrying the industry, I think. It is worrisome. Indeed, oil prices are down again, this time 5% to a near six-year low of about 47 US dollars a barrel. From New York, here's BBC's Michelle Fleury. Another day, another drop in the price of oil, after an influential Wall Street bank cut its forecast. Goldman Sachs believes the price of oil could tumble to as low as $42 a barrel. Both the traditional oil producers, such as OPEC countries, and new ones like America's shale oil fields, are still pumping more oil than the global economy can absorb. And it's this that Goldman Sachs believes will keep oil prices low and possibly falling further in the months ahead. Fadel Geit is an analyst at Oppenheimer and & Company, and he examines the long-term impact of oil over a long-term time frame on economics and oil producers. It's just bad news all over, whether it's large or small. At the end of the day, this is the lifeblood of the oil industry. If oil prices stay at the current level, all these companies will have to rethink their strategy. They are going to go smaller. Some of them will not survive. The bigger companies with deeper pockets and strong balance sheet will take advantage of the market, will make acquisitions. So it is a mixed bag, but generally bad news for the energy industry. And as to how much lower prices will go... Uh, I do believe oil prices will, will surprise in the way down as they will surprise yep. in the way up. And when we see June 30 contract, put contract, that means mm-hmm. that somebody is betting their hard-earned dollar or their client's money that oil prices will go lower. And I do believe that oil prices will go well. lower before they rebound. Falling oil prices dragged down energy stocks nearly 3% in New York. The Dow fell 96 points, just over half a percent to 17,640. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq both fell 0.8% to 2,028 and 4,664 respectively.
Andrew, it's hard to see how crude's effects can escape the markets. Do you see volatility ramping up all over the globe? Well, I think there's a lot of volatility out there because we've got a lot of uncertainty. You know, U.S. growth is is at historically low levels, although it is growing. We've got a lot of uncertainty about of out of Europe and whether QE and how much scope Draghi is going to have there, or whether the Bundesbank is going to undermine what he wants to do there. Uh, and you know, that's going to impact here in Asia, where you know there's a lot of exporting nations that are relying on demand from the rest of the world. And other things creating uncertainty as well. The cyber attack on U.S. Central Command's Twitter and YouTube accounts happened just as President Barack Obama was delivering a speech on cybersecurity. Cyber Response CEO Joe Loomis says that the timing is no coincidence. I think it's a calculated approach, right? I mean, if you're going to compromise an account, you think about what is the most ideal time to let the, the victim know about it. And what is going to be the biggest statement piece? You know, it's it's once once they know that they've been had, the campaign only it loses its luster. You know, shortly thereafter, it's definitely it, it proves the point that these things are extremely calculated and they're also very patient. Just because they get into an account, you know, it's not because of just password strength too. People need to understand that browsing the internet alone can infect your computer with malware that logs all of your passwords so that it doesn't matter if you have a 50 character password with random numbers and symbols if they have malware on the endpoint or which is your laptop desktop they're going to get all of those type of credentials and i think this is kind of a demonstration of that Andrew, markets have been relatively, relatively unaffected by cybersecurity issues. They've, of course, they've been affected by other things. But, you know, these incidences are on the rise as are live terror attacks, which continue to work their way into the global system. Now, we've seen this recently in Australia and certainly once again in France. Is it a question of time before these kind of events also begin to impact volatility? Well, I think they've already impacted the volatility. I mean, if you look at some of the U.S. retail firms that have had their systems cracked uh, and had to apologise to their clients, as have some of the banks. So it, it's something that people have got to factor in as a, you know, a, a recurrent theme of life these days, unfortunately. Yeah, OK. Well, uh, it's definitely... Um leaves one uh, feeling uh, sort of shaky about the system, which is already shaky. Um, switching gear a little bit, not so long auto shows were all about austerity and economy. Now, that, of course, was uh, during the aftermath of the global financial crisis when oil soared over 100 U.S. dollars a barrel. But happy days are here again, at least uh, at Detroit, where Ford and Honda have unveiled their latest supercars. Ford has unveiled an update to the legendary GT, last produced a decade ago, uh, boasting 600 horsepower and a twin-charged V6 EcoBoost engine. Here is Ford CEO Mark Fields. We pride ourselves on having a full lineup of vehicles, everything from our small vehicles all the way up to our large trucks, and even this great new supercar. And uh, it's going to be uh, available. We didn't show it's not a concept. It's a real production vehicle. It'll be available the end, towards the back end of next year. It's going to get uh, at least 600 horsepower. It has great technology in terms of carbon fiber structure and aluminum structure, carbon fiber panels. Um, a new EcoBoost 3.5-liter engine in it. So all this great technology to be a showcase for what we're doing as a company. 
Honda hit back two hours later with a new 150,000 US dollar version of its famous Acura NSX supercar with 550 horsepower. But in China, car dealers are in an open revolt over industry practices that have slashed profits, threatening prospects for companies like GM and Volkswagen in the world's biggest auto market. Andrew, what do you make of this? I mean, there's lots of news on the auto front, but uh, perhaps all is not rosy on this side of the world. Well, certainly in China, I mean, we've seen a number of the larger cities having to cope with congestion. Uh, and the, the first way they've you know, dealt with that is putting quotas on the number of new cars allowed to be sold. So that's part of the reason that the auto uh, dealers are up in arms, because they get set quotas by the you know, people like BMW of cars that they have to sell. And it's becoming increasingly difficult for them. So auto stocks, uh, not necessarily an area to look at right now in China? Well, I mean, the, the, the China automobile um, manufacturers are forecasting something like a 7% growth for this year, uh, but that's down from you know, four, nearly 14% in 2013. The thing is, China has grown. People have moved on from you know, bicycles to mopeds to cars, but you get a saturation point quite quickly, I think. All right. Well, we'll certainly be back to talk more about uh, uh, China's A-shares. Uh, that is uh, right after we look at these numbers. Uh, the Nikkei is down 219 points to 16,978. Australia's ASX index is down 40 points to 5,358. In currencies, one euro currently buys you 1.18 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 118 yen and one pound sterling buys you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 76 cents. In the past, we could only watch on TV. In the past, we did not take part in making the decision. In the past, only 1,200 people voted. In 2017, 5 million people can take part through one person, one vote. 2017, seize the opportunity. The public consultation on the method for selecting the chief executive by universal suffrage is now underway. Please give your views by March 7. Check out 2017.gov.hk. The time is now 8.13 a.m. and Chinese corporate profits are trending lower even as mainland listed stocks have rallied. The disconnect is unlikely to persist, according to some analysts who warn that uh, the game among A shares looks unsustainable. Let's bring in Gillam Tullock, who is the founder of GMT Research. Good morning, Gillam. Good morning. So, Gillam, do you see A shares as a bubble? Yes, absolutely. Um, what we're seeing is... a uh, liquidity-driven parabolic spike in equity prices, which uh, we have seen before in the latter stages of, of a, a bull market or a, a liquidity-driven bubble. So liquidity is looking for somewhere to go. Uh, they can't leave the country. It can't go to Macau. And so it's going into the equity market that's not had a bubble since 2007. And so what is the way forward then from here? Um, well, I mean, I think that uh, possibly within six to 12 months, um, uh, A-shares will be far lower than they were before the rally began. I, I, you know, the, the, the A-share market is the most expensive stock market by some measures in the world. So if you look at a median PE, it trades in around 40 times. Andrew, your well, thoughts? Well, I was just wondering, I mean, do you think this is part of China trying to deflate their property bubble and move that cash? 
No, I, I think it's a consequence of it, for sure, because up until now, the only game in town left was the property market. Um, and now that's beginning to deflate. Uh, you know, you've got all this credit and it has to go somewhere. So they're still injecting close to, I think, you know, two and a half to three trillion US dollars of new credit into the system every single year. And there's no economic activity to take up that slack. And so it's just spilling into equity markets. We've had bubbles in everything from, you know, uh, pigs to agricultural seeds to property to cars. Uh, and now, of course, it's back into equities. So with the economy slowing down and yet this bubble happening, um, surely that is something to worry about? Yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, people are going to lose their savings. And, and of course, a lot of this has been bought on, on margin. So I believe that the exposure to margin trading, you know, that's when you take a loan and you invest it in the stock market, is now higher than it is in the U.S. It took the U.S., you know, a couple of decades uh, to get up to where they are, I think you know margin lending three percent of market cap or something like that, and china 's done it in less than two years. you know as with everything in china they 've just managed to not just catch up but exceed everyone else in an incredibly short period of time so why um, are analysts out there, many of them, many of them still so bullish then on the China story? Follow the herd um, <laughs> you know you don 't want to miss out on, on making some money uh, if you 're an analyst it 's not about giving your clients the right advice it 's about making making sure that they trade so you can take the commission and take that home as a bonus. Well, there is some honesty, if I ever heard any. Andrew, what do you think about that? <laughs> well, I think, I mean, it's, it's like most investing, though. I mean, you're right, there is a momentum there, uh, and people don't want to miss out on that, and that's why people have to be vigilant and, and follow the stocks closely. But, uh, you know, I think there's still some good fundamentals out there. But as, as you say, it's been a restricted market for so long now that they've opened it up. Everybody wants a, a slice of it. So let's talk about that for a second. What are the good fundamentals? Because, you know, this is the kind of stuff that our listeners need to know about, especially in the wake of these, you know, potential problems that might occur. Tell us. Um, well, I mean, you do have a, you want to stay away from all cyclical companies because the market as a whole is more leveraged than Spain and is a similar leverage to Greece. And yet the banks in Spain and Greece are reporting NPLs of close to 10%, whereas they're pretending they're around 1% in China. So overall, the fundamentals are dreadful. Um, but if you, you know, there are, as with every market, there are good stories, uh, you know, companies focused on structural issues like, uh, for example, import substitution. Obviously, you've got the tech space and China is, you know, pioneering uh, globally in some of these areas. And also, you've got some good infrastructure stories as well, um, stocks that are you know, they've put the capex in place or the infrastructure in place and they're now deleveraging, generating strong free cash inflows and they'll be able to pay high dividend yields in future. So you've got to search around, uh, you know, to find these stocks, but the vast majority of it looks very insolvent. Uh, you know, they're facing bankruptcy because their leverage is so high. Gillam, any specific stocks, uh, stock uh, names you'd like to share? Um, well, I mean, you know, look at Shenzhen Expressway, look at uh, Shanghai or Beijing International Airports. I mean, they're solid, they're safe, they're stodgy. I'd even look at some of the, the mobile stocks as well, like, you know, China Mobile, etc. It seems to have a regulatory tailwind um, and expectations for growth are extremely low. Andrew, you want to add to that? Well, I think it, it, it's very true. You have to look at stocks that have a, a real income stream and uh, you have to also keep looking at the management of these companies because that's going to be the key driver as to what they're going to do in the future. Gillam, are there any precedents in Asia that you could point to where stock market rallies have been a precursor to a crisis? 
Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, not, not just uh, stock markets, but also commodity indexes. I mean, you just have to look at China back in 1997, which was in July 1997. That was when the Asian crisis was unfolding in Southeast Asia. Um, and the China Enterprises uh, Index went up something like 60% in just two months. Um, up to July 97, which was when the bar devalued, etc. And then it was down, I think, 80 to 90% over the next year. So you look at then, let's say, look at the commodities complex. Um, if you look at uh, what happened, there was a parabolic spike in 2008 as the global financial crisis unwound. It went up. Oh, it went up something like 50% in six months because liquidity came out of the real economy into commodities, and then it halved over the next year. So, you know, the, these sort of uh, liquidity-driven parabolic spikes happen with worrying frequency these days because of the amount of leverage that's been stuffed into the global economy. So why is it then that investors are not picking up on these so-called warning signs? Well, liquidity is very, very important. Um, you know, it, it, liquidity and fundamentals drive markets. Um, and markets are not efficient. Uh, they're inefficient. If markets were efficient, then you wouldn't need equity analysts like ourselves. Um, so people just miss it sometimes. And as I said, in, in China, there's a specific set of reasons as to why people are piling into the A shares. There's a very, you know, there's a lack of alternative investment uh, opportunities. Andrew, any thoughts? Well, I think it's true. I mean, as you say, I mean, if you look back five years when uh, equity analysts here were looking at the number of accounts being opened on almost on a daily basis, it really did show you that uh, a lot of this money is retail money that is just looking for a home. And that, that's the same now. And as we're saying here, a lot of it's on leveraged you know, margin calls. So the, the downside can be just as quick as the upside has been. Would you say that the Stock Connect program in that case has not been successful? Well, the Stock Connect program has been very successful, for, really, for people that are running things like ETFs, uh, and that's allowed them to go over and above their, their QFI exposure and, and design more product, which is what a lot of the, the global market wants. And, Gillam, your parting thoughts on that? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I would agree. Um, I don't really have much more to add. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning. That is Gillam Tullock, and he is the founder of GMT Research. Your mama, La Chiquita. And I'm DJ Stone Dog reminding you we're back with an all new season of The Gablehood on Radio 3. Hong Kong's only weekly English language LGBT show covering all things pink and fabulous within our city's rainbow community. The Gablehood is open to everyone. Each week we give you the inside scoop on all the hottest current topics and events happening in the LGBT scene. Plus, all the hottest new music releases blowing up in the gay clubs. The Gablehood, Saturday evenings, 5 past 9, here on 3. Now- where are my lashes? The time is now 8.22 a.m. and Hong Kong and Singapore are vying to become regional centers for arbitration. The process is gaining ground as an effective way to resolve disputes without encumbering the heavy costs that come with lengthy legal proceedings. Joining us now on the show to discuss more about this is Philip Giorgio. He is a partner uh, of Global Disputes, of the Global Disputes Practice at Jones Day. Good morning, Philip. Good morning. And thanks for joining us 
us on Money for Nothing. So, uh, Philip, cases in Hong Kong are heard through the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center. Uh, yes. So tell us a little bit about this, about arbitration and why it's growing in popularity, just as a topic. Okay. Well, uh, arbitration is a, an alternative way of resolving disputes rather than going into litigation. Uh, it's been used in Hong Kong for a number of years. In fact, the HKC was opened up in 1986. Uh, it is traditionally seen as a faster and uh, uh, cheaper way or less costly way of resolving disputes. The, the fact of the matter is when you're talking about large disputes, though, and based on my own experience and those of my peers, would say that the costs and the time can sometimes uh, equal each other, whether you go into the courts or into arbitration. And why is that? Is it just the ability to get to the point? Is it uh, inefficiencies in the legal system? I mean, you, tell us why. Well, the um, the main reason would be that uh, that we impose a number of procedures when we try and resolve disputes, um, and we've pretty much mirrored the way they do it in courts in arbitration, which is quite unfortunate, particularly in Hong Kong and Singapore and elsewhere in the world. Whereas if you take um, the examples in China and say where they have uh, an arbitral institution or body called CTAC and some many others, they take a more expedited approach. But there's a balancing act because the faster you try and resolve a dispute, uh, you're more at risk of not actually delving into the issues deep enough and getting to the point as you put it, and therefore you're at risk of perhaps um, ending up with rough justice. And what would you say are the differences when bringing a case up for arbitration in Hong Kong versus Singapore? Well, the the fact of the matter is, and if we're to be very honest about it, they are both very good places to arbitrate, both Singapore and Hong Kong. Uh, they've got very supportive judiciaries, which don't intervene in the in the um, in the arbitration process. So I've, I've arbitrated in both jurisdictions. I'd say they're equally as good as one another, which it actually makes uh, raises the question why this this vying for business and um, or, or for cases. Uh, we should, I suppose, as a, as a practice and as, as people um, doing business in the region, be happy that there are two jurisdictions within this uh, otherwise volatile and uncertain part of the world where you can actually resolve your disputes effectively. That said, a lot of money and time is spent, particularly in Singapore, in promoting its, um, it as a seat or a place to actually undertake your arbitrations. And so as a company or as an individual, if I have a dispute that, uh, that, that needs to be settled, you know, if there's not that much difference between the two jurisdictions, uh, how would I make that decision? Is one cheaper than uh, the other? Well, cost-wise, they're close, but to me it raises a more general and more fundamental issue for Hong Kong, and that is that as Singapore marches ahead in terms of uh, the perception of it being a, a much better place to arbitrate, it actually starts to erode the perception of Hong Kong, in particular its respect to the rule of law. And it's very unfortunate, but if you were to speak to, say, a, a foreign investor out of the US or, um, or Australia or Europe and you'd say, uh, my clients, for example, where I'd say, well, here are your options, and the immediate or the usual reaction to Hong Kong is, well, that's just part of China, so the process is going to be... Uh, interfered with by the Chinese. It's completely misplaced. It's completely um, uh, a misconceived view of what actually goes on. But that's the reality. So from a more fundamental perspective, we do need to catch up, not so much in the way we we deal with arbitrations, but the way we're perceived, the way that Hong Kong is perceived as a very safe jurisdiction, probably one of the best in the world, from our right through the way we arbitrate to our court system all the way to our court of final appeal. Andrew, I'd love to uh, bring you in and understand your thoughts on this. Do you, do you agree that there is this misconception out there about Hong Kong uh, just being sort of clubbed in with China when it comes to uh, legal issues and arbitration? 
Well, I think it's a lot of the, one of the you know, reasons a lot of firms set up in Hong Kong is so that they actually do have the advantage of the, the rule of law from Hong Kong rather than writing contracts in China where uh, you know, disputes can be uh, less well settled, I think, is, would be the fair way of looking at it. You know, people like the, the British legal system, the, the rule of precedence, so that they can refer to previous judgments and take that as a rule uh, and know that that's going to be enforced, whereas in China you don't get that same uh, precedence rule coming through yet. Uh, and really, that really is the, the foundation of why so many companies like Hong Kong and why we're such a good business centre. Philip, I guess the question is then how long realistically can we expect that to last? I mean, so many things are changing. There's a lot of scepticism. There's a lot of uh, argument on sort of both sides of you know the equation. Will things change? Well, I, I think it should be the priority of, um, of this government um, as it moves forward through these very difficult times of dealing with democratization and universal suffrage to ensure that whatever we do, the rule of law is supported, uh, that, that our, our, our judiciary is, is always seen for what it is, and that is a, is a transparent and independent, unbiased institution, uh, that, um, that our legal framework is very open uh, and anything which starts to poke at that or erode at it, uh, we, we need to make sure as both a society and government to ensure that that's stopped. Uh, now, we have every reason to, to expect that we can continue going on indefinitely uh, with a strong rule of law in Hong Kong. Of course, it is a very popular topic, especially this week as we are coming up uh, to the CE policy address. Um, and uh, analysts out there are saying that, you know, without rule of law, there is no question of the universal uh, suffrage. Is there, uh, you know, what are you expecting from the CE policy address uh, just with a view to this particular area of things? Anything? Well, I, I think that the, the words will all be positive. I don't think he, um, the CEO will say anything which is going to um, suggest that, um, uh, that the rule of law has to be eroded. I, I think um, he'll say anything very supportive of it. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, the thing about Hong Kong is that whilst we have a, a huge amount of respect and um, support for our, for our rule of law and judiciary, obviously from the universal suffrage perspective, there is still a way to go. So, um, again, just to get sort of a clearer understanding of Hong Kong versus Singapore, um, sounds like there's not that much difference between the two when it comes to arbitration. Is there any difference, would you say, when it comes to, let's say, a critical stage of enforcing a decision um, of an arbitrator to recover damages or other relief? Well, it's a very good question, and um, the the way it works, just very briefly, is um, we have something called the New York Convention is one of the main advantages of arbitration because that allows you to enforce an award made in one member state, and there are hundred, over 150 of them. Pretty much every country in the world is a member, including Palestine, which has recently um, put in its application. Um, and and that, that allows you to enforce these awards in other member states around the world. Now, um, Hong Kong and Singapore, they, um, they're... The awards that come out of both these jurisdictions are very um, they're very strong, they're very safe, and then you can enforce elsewhere as long as there are assets in that jurisdiction. There is one distinction, though, and this was highlighted in a case which went all the way to the Court of Final Appeal a couple of years ago called the, um, known as the Congo case, where the issue of absolute immunity of a sovereign, in that case the Congo, uh, they defeated enforcement proceedings in Hong Kong because in China... Um, uh, they have um, absolute immunity. So that's one of the difference between the two. All right, Philip, thank you so much. Um, unfortunately, uh, we have to wrap up the segment now. That is Philip Giorgio. He is a partner of Global 
the, of the global disputes practice at Jones Day. A quick look at the numbers before we depart. Uh, the Nikkei is down 252 points at this point to uh, 16,944. Australia's ASX and Seoul's Kospi both down uh, respectively 42 points and 5 points to uh, 5,356 and 1,915. Brent crude oil currently at $47.43 and gold is at $1,231.40 per ounce. Andrew, any quick parting words uh, before we wrap up the show? Well, I mean, you mentioned the policy address, but today we get the trade data out of China, which people will be watching carefully to watch for the slowing. Uh, and obviously tomorrow the Japanese budget is going to be on people's minds. Thank you for joining us as co-host this morning. Andrew Sullivan joins us every Tuesday as co-host. So if there are questions you'd like to put to him, please do post them on Money for Nothing's Facebook page. I'm Renita Malhotra Hora, wrapping up now for Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast before we depart. The winter monsoon is bringing cold weather to southern China. It today will be cloudy and overcast with rain and cold, very cold. The temperature right now is 12 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 95%. And now it's time for the half-hour news summary with Sam Butler. The cover of the next edition of the French satirical weekly Charlie Hebdo will show a cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad below a headline, All is Forgiven. The first issue of the magazine since the attack will be available from tomorrow. From Paris, here's the BBC's Chris Morris. 